This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, Ryan, Marta, Cam, Andy, Patty, Tim, Paul, Andrew, John, and Chris. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Walter Robbie Robinson. Robbie is an investigative journalist, an editor-at-large at the Boston Globe, and is the Donald W. Reynolds Visiting Professor of Journalism at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communications at Arizona State University. During our conversation, Robbie talks about his career in journalism, the Catholic Church's historic power in America and in Boston, how and why his spotlight team began to investigate the Catholic Church, the details of the internal documents showing the Church's culture of secrecy and its consistency in moving abusive priests to new parishes, and how a small team of journalists in just a few months shed light on the systemic abuse of power by one of the most influential institutions in the world. To me, Robbie and his team best represent why free speech and a free press are crucial to a free society. They ask difficult questions, question taboos, have the power of facing disturbing facts, are relentless in determining what's true, and act as a protector to a civilization's need for honest, accurate information. And while the church's history of abuse is utterly tragic for the crimes and the trauma it has caused, the courageous work by people like Robbie have undoubtedly saved countless children from such a fate. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Walter Robinson. All right, Robbie. Well, uh, thank you so much for doing this. I, uh, I've been really looking forward to this conversation. It's an honor to meet you. Welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. Thanks. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So I'd love to start at the beginning with your story in life and in the trajectory that led you into journalism. And I'm wondering, we were just talking offline about your 50-year career at the Boston Globe. Did you always know that you wanted to be a journalist? Was that something as a, as a kid you had an aptitude for and you, you felt like that was a bit of a calling? Or what's the story that got you into journalism in the first place? Well, you know, we... we... A lot of us in, in the business like to joke that uh, we got into journalism because we were lousy at science and math. Yeah. And then, then of course, once you get into it, you find out pretty quickly that pretty much every story has at least one dollar sign in it. So you better get with the math in a hurry. But I, I actually, uh, uh, my love for journalism started uh, when I was a little kid. And I had a paper route in my hometown, north of Boston. And, uh, and I'd pick up the papers at 5.30 in the morning if it was dark, it was under a street light, and I snipped the bundle, you know, with a pair of wire cutters. And I was like the first person in Melrose, Massachusetts, to read the paper. Yeah. You know, that's when everybody got their news by paper, you know. And um, uh, I had two... Uh, journalists on my paper route. 
One worked for the Globe uh, and one worked for the old Herald Traveler. And uh, it was an honor, you know, to put papers on their doorsteps, which often had their bylines on it. So, uh, and I, I happened to grow up in a, uh, a house, and I guess this was pretty common back then, uh, when, uh, you know, we got two papers delivered every day. Uh, my parents were very interested in politics, uh, and uh, we talked about issues in the news all the time. So I was sort of predisposed, and I really was lousy at math and science, you know. Um, so I, 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 I kind of... Uh, I started uh, studying uh, uh, journalism at Northeastern University in Boston, and uh, uh, I was a horrible student. And I, I ended up uh, in the in the mid '60s. Uh, my uh, my draft number came up, uh, and uh, so I, I ended up in the army for four years uh, in the middle of my uh, college education and. Uh, uh, I ended up as an intelligence officer, uh, which is some people think is an oxymoron. Uh, and uh, uh, and I, I actually learned a lot about reporting. You know, I was involved in sort of gathering intelligence and analyzing it and trying to figure out if, if you if you if I could use a phrase that's now uh, current, you know, what was fake news and what wasn't. Yeah. And uh, so I, I kind of grew up in that period. And uh, I spent I had uh, the army sent me to Hawaii for two years and then I did a year in Vietnam. And uh, so I came back and I went back to uh, Northeastern and almost immediately got hired at the Globe as an intern um, reporter. And uh, so I finished my uh college and the globe hired me on staff because by that point I'd become a fixture on page one. Uh, and, uh, so that's where I, that's where I ended up. And, uh, at the time, uh, and I, I think still, uh, one of the best papers in the country. And, uh, you know, I did, uh, I mean the traditional route, upward for a reporter was to cover politics and government yeah. at the Globe. And I did that city hall, Boston city hall, the state house. Uh, uh, I, I ran our state house bureau in the late seventies, early eighties. And uh, um, uh, I ended up getting a fellowship to Stanford, uh, journalism fellowship to Stanford university. And uh, then I came back, went on the, um, on the uh, national staff and started to cover presidential politics and then moved to Washington, DC, where I was the Globe's uh, White House reporter uh, for the second Reagan and first Bush, I call them the good Bush uh, administrations. And um, uh, that by the way, is the most overrated beat in journalism, or at least it was until uh, Trump became president. But, uh, Anyway, so I did that for uh, seven or eight years, and then the Globe asked me, uh, uh, "Geez, you've earned a uh, you've earned a respite. How would you like to become our Middle East bureau chief?" <laughs> so I, I bid on that, and uh, we moved to uh, 
Jerusalem, where the Bureau was based. And uh, this was in 1990. And uh, we'd been there about 10 days when Iraq invaded Kuwait. Yeah. And uh, so I ended up as a war correspondent for a year in the Middle East, which obviously nobody had anticipated. And, uh, and, and uh, so, you, you know, after that, uh, I went back to Washington. And then in 92, I moved back to Boston and I became uh, Lou Grant, city editor. Yeah. And uh, so I ran the, the local newsroom for a year and then I became uh, assistant managing editor for local news. So I covered, uh, I was in charge of all the local news coverage. And then after that, I, uh, uh, I'd worn a lot of tread off my tires. So uh, they gave me a cushy beat as the roving national and foreign correspondent. So I basically went wherever I wanted and did whatever I wanted to do. And, uh, and then uh, I, uh, I covered the uh, 2000 presidential campaign, which was my fourth. Yeah. And I did that one as an investigative reporter and, uh, uh, the most memorable story I did, which went almost unnoticed, was about how George W. Bush uh, had been AWOL for a lot of his National Guard service. And uh, it it became an issue in 2004, but it went virtually unnoticed in 2000. And um, I, I, li- I like to talk about that sometimes because that was just before the Internet. Yeah. So when you did a story for the Boston Globe uh, about an issue like that, it, it didn't get around uh, as opposed to what happened a couple of years later when we started our Catholic Church investigation. Yeah. And I, at, at that point, I had taken over the spotlight team and uh, uh, we got an, a new editor, Marty Barron, who... Uh, uh, came in from the Miami Herald and in very first day as editor, uh, he made reference to a story we had had or a column the prior day about this one priest, John Gagan, who had been uh, charged in by 84 plaintiffs, 84 victims who accused him of sexual abuse. And the new editor, Marty Barron, uh, wondered why we hadn't done more reporting on that, which was uh, is the best example I could think of uh, what a fresh pair of eyes can do uh, in, in any newsroom. I think we were, uh, we were all kind of acculturated. You know, a judge had, uh, had, had issued uh, uh, an order that impounded all of the personnel record to this priest in in the lawsuit so we couldn't get at them and uh well if a judge rules that that's the case then that must be the case and marty Barron said well wait a minute the public has a right to know and uh shouldn't we go to court and file a motion to get these records unsealed this is very first news meeting and uh uh so later that same day, he called me into his office and he said, I'd like the spotlight team to look into this priest. And I'm standing there because it was a standing up meeting. It wasn't like 
let's sit down and talk this over at any great length. He was essentially asking the investigative arm of the globe to investigate the most iconic and politically powerful institution in Massachusetts, which would be the uh, Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Boston. And For for people who don't know what that time was like, you know, I think this is the early 2000s, 2001, 2002. Talk about the power of the church at that time. I mean, it, it not only it seems like in my research of your story, was it was it cultural power, but it really also they had a political power as well, especially in the state of Massachusetts and in Boston. Talk about that a little bit. What, what was that like at the time? Yeah, I think uh, going back uh, to William Cardinal O'Connell in the 1920s and 1930s, uh, the Cardinal Archbishop of Boston uh, became the most powerful and influential political figure in the state. And in Eastern Massachusetts, which is the Archdiocese of Boston, um, uh, there are about 4 million people, and about half of them at least are nominally Catholic. So you've got a very large and loyal constituency. And uh, I'll I'll tell you one story that sort of illustrates the power of the church. Um, We found this out later, but throughout the, uh, starting the late 80s through the 90s, a group of Protestant ministers and rabbis every year had proposed legislation to make clergymen so-called mandated reporters. And just to briefly explain what that is, in every state in the country, there are mandated reporting laws, and they typically require doctors, nurses, teachers, social workers, et cetera. If they see any evidence of child abuse or sexual abuse of a child, they are required to report that to authorities. They don't have a, a choice. They have to. And in fact, if they don't, they can go to jail themselves. So it's a very powerful law. And, and every year, the rabbis and the ministers tried to get it extended to include clergymen. And every year, unbeknownst to the globe or anyone else, the cardinal's lobbyist made sure that the legislation died. Because if it was in effect, there'd be a whole lot of bishops and cardinals in prison right now. And, and so that was one example of the power of the church. And the cardinal at the time, Bernard Law, uh, was uh, imperious, to say the least. Mm. And he didn't brook dissent. And even though the, the Boston Globe editorial policy was in sync with the church's views, on everything from uh, hunger to capital punishment to caring for the poor. The fact that the globe was pro-choice on abortion made the paper persona non grata as far as the Cardinal was concerned. So there was a tension there pre-existing between the newspaper and the Cardinal. And so, so that's kind of the backdrop against 
against that we were up against. And, and I think we, um, I think Marty understood that. Uh, I don't think he uh, understood it to the extent that the rest of us did. I remember going down and, and talking to my, my team of reporters, which was, there were three, three of them and myself at the time and saying, guess what the new editor wants us to do. And we, you know, the most investigative teams, including the Globes had sort of feasted on uh, public corruption and shady business guys and shoddy home construction and that sort of thing. We didn't have a damn file on the Catholic church. You knew nothing. And so we started out on this, and I, I like to think um, um, one of the great motivators in journalism, actually in any field, is fear of the new boss. <laughs> and, and, and by that I mean, you know, here, here's the new editor on his very first day asking the Spotlight team to investigate this priest, and, and I'm thinking oh my God, we better get this one right. And since we knew nothing, we started out saying, look, let's call everybody we could think of who knows anything about the sexual abuse of children. Lawyers, advocates, any victims we could find. And so we basically uh, spent a week or so doing that. And very quickly, uh, we, uh, we turned up a couple of lawyers who kind of whispered to us, if you will, because they couldn't legally tell us anything, uh, who had handled cases and who told us that the, this guy, Gagan, he's just the tip of, a, of an iceberg. And the church has been paying hush money to settle claims. Uh, and there's no court records because the lawyers came right to the archdiocese and they kept it out of the courts. So it was a mediated settlements and and uh, a couple of the, one of the lawyers called it hush money. And so we're, we're starting out. And after a week, we find out that, oh, my God, there might be a dozen priests involved. Mm. I mean, that's a huge story. Mm. And the church had covered it up. So then we had to figure out how do we get at that? Yeah. And, um, you know, the church has no requirement to report anything publicly. And they certainly don't answer phone calls from reporters. And uh, so then we had to chart a course to figure out how do we, how do we, uh, how do we document this? And um, so we spent, uh, we started uh, the end of July of 2001 and we published our first story January of 2002. So that was five months. Uh, we took, uh, after 9-11, we took five weeks off to do investigative reporting on, on what happened with the, uh, with the, the terrorist attack because two of the planes, as you know, had flown out of Boston. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but in, in, in that period of time, uh, we were able to get records on the one priest. And then, remember I said we, the editor wanted to go to court 
to get all the records. And we actually went to court, filed a motion, and the judge ruled that we would, in November of 2001, that we would get the records in January. And, um, uh, and that, that was a momentous decision uh, for us. So, uh, and then by, by the time, without going into too much detail, I don't want to put you to sleep, uh, by the time we started to publish in January, we already knew of about a hundred priests just in Boston who had abused children. Yeah. And this had all been uh, covered up. And as soon as we started to publish uh, in early January, um, the phone started to ring off the hook. And we initially, we anticipated that because because it was the Catholic Church, uh, that we would have people picketing in front of the globe. Um, And that didn't really happen uh, because we had the documents that that proved it. And um, so we got, in the first few weeks, we got hundreds of phone calls from victims. And in most cases, uh, they had never told anyone because they were afraid to when they were kids. And, uh, and so we were often the first people who were told about it. And it was, this was tough reporting because we're not counselors. And talking to people who've had that kind of a traumatic, life-changing experience is is really it's difficult for reporters i mean obviously more difficult for the victims um but we we uh we weren't just getting calls and emails from boston we were getting them from all over the world and what had happened uh we didn't quite understand at the time is that our story started to publish sort of in the dawn of the internet age. And it's hard to believe it was just 20 years ago, but, but so rather than, rather than nobody noticing, everybody noticed. And every major news organization in pretty much every major city in the country started investigating this. Uh, the news magazines, uh, the TV networks were sending people to Boston. And, you know, very often early on, people would say to us, well, is there something in the water in Boston that makes priests abuse children? And we'd say, no, 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 you don't understand. This is happening everywhere. This is literally happening everywhere. And now we're 20 years on, and I think everybody understands that it was going on uh, everywhere. The number of priests in the United States who abused children, uh, the number is approaching 8,000. Uh, once, I mean, there are many dioceses in the United States that still haven't come clean. Yeah. And uh, so the estimates are that in the United States, over that 50-year period, uh, it appears likely that the final number will be over 12,000 priests. And that's roughly 
10% of the priests who, who served. Yeah. That's, that's pretty scary. I want to read a quote that I saw you um, make in a documentary about the Spotlight team. You said, we find people who are victimized by society and by institutions that are supposed to protect them. We give a voice to people who are voiceless. We've already talked about the Spotlight team a little bit. I think for people that have seen the movie, they're probably familiar with what the role of the Spotlight team was within the Boston Globe. But I would love to give you an opportunity to speak in detail about what that team specifically was designed to do. You know, I'm imagining that different cohorts within any newspaper have various roles, but Spotlight really had a specific mission. Well, what was that mission? Well, I think to borrow a phrase that's become more popular since, say, 2016, uh, our, 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 our role as a news organization, yeah, we cover sports, uh, and some people buy the paper only for sports, but our, our real role in a democracy is to hold powerful people and institutions accountable. Yeah. That's what we do. And, um, and very often in trying to do that, there are roadblocks in our way. And an investigative team is designed to find ways to get over, under, or through those roadblocks. And the team, um, it's now the, the spotlight team at the Globe is now the longest running investigative newspaper investigative unit in the country. It started in 1970. It was fashioned initially on the Insight team at the Sunday Times of London. And, um, and, and that, that paper in the 1960s uh, did extraordinary journalism uh, for instance, they exposed the thalidomide scandal in Europe hmm. uh, and all, all sorts of wrongdoing. And there wasn't anything like that in the United States. And we had a, a young editor who spent a year, we had an exchange program with the Sunday Times of London, which I never got. I wish, wish that I had. But, but he came back and he went to our editor, Tom Winship, and he said, hey, we should start a, an investigative team. And the editor, Tom Winship, said, well, I don't know about that. He said, why don't you go to Washington and talk to my friend Ben Bradley, who had been obviously uh, was about to go through Watergate. And so this young editor, Tim Leland, went to Washington, met with Ben Bradley and asked Bradley what he thought of forming an investigative team. And Bradley said, bad idea, waste of talent. Don't do it. So Tim Leland came back and said to Winship, I think we should start this team. <laughs> and, and Winship agreed. And they started uh, in 1970. And a year later, they won a Pulitzer Prize for exposing wrongdoing in the city of Somerville, Massachusetts. And so it became uh, kind of an iconic institution almost overnight at the Globe. Hmm. And... Um, the way it worked is it had, you know, it had an, an, an editor who was always a player coach um, and um, three or four reporters and reporters from the best reporters in the newsroom wanted to be on the spotlight team. And then they'd spend two or three years on the spotlight team and they'd learn all sorts of reporting techniques. And then they'd go back to, 
covering a beat in the newsroom, they'd be much better reporters for the experience. And the goal back then, I think, was much more focused on uh, official corruption. Hmm. And um, very often uh, when when you're doing reporting uh, on things going wrong in government, there's a victimized population that is supposed to be getting services but isn't. Uh, I mean, at one point, uh, I don't mean to get off on a tangent here, I took a look at five years of submissions uh, to the Pulitzer Prize Committee uh, from around the country. And in the investigative category, uh, almost 60% of the entries every year were about government agencies in different ways not doing a very good job. Yeah. And um, in the case of, I, I mean, I think, I think uh, one of the lessons that we learned, I'd say the major lesson we learned from our investigation um, is, first of all, that you have to give the same scrutiny to your most beloved and iconic institutions in your community. Uh, you have to remember that the art museum is actually run by human beings who are just as fallible as the people who we elect to government. Mm. And the, the church is an example here that we, I think for a long time, we missed signals because who could imagine that, that the Catholic church, which is supposed to care for children, was enabling and covering up the abuse of thousands of children. It's yeah. just, it's, not mind-boggling. If anybody had told you that 25 or 30 years ago, you would have thought they were nuts. Yeah. Um, so that I, I think the, the other lesson we learned is that there are a whole lot of people in society who have no voice, except for the one that we give them. And so that our mission uh, is sort of much more focused now on shining a bright light into very dark corners and, and trying to find ways to get at those kinds of stories. Yeah. Um, I want to, I want to focus in on the early two thousands really prior to the Catholic church investigation. And I, I should just concede that, uh, and admit I, I was a, an altar server when I was a kid, I grew up in a Catholic family and was a, absolute believer uh in the in the 90s when i was a, a boy um i think in my reading of your background i think you have described yourself as a lapsed catholic in the sense that you you also have at least a cultural background in catholicism and it's easy i think for people now who have seen spotlight who are familiar with your work to think that you know, it's always been known that the Catholic Church has been has had its um, you know criminal aspects in its history. But I'm wondering for you, when Marty Baron came in and asked you to take on this assignment, you've already alluded to this a little bit in the conversation. What was your reputation of the church at that time, and did you have any personal you know hunch that there was? something nefarious there, something criminal there related to the abuse that you would later uncover? 
Uh, no, I didn't. Well, first of all, I was an altar boy as well. Um, and, um, and I went to Catholic schools. I went to the Jesuit high school in Boston, which we ended up writing about. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I didn't have a clue. I mean, I certainly didn't as a kid growing up, because when you grew up in a Catholic family in the 50s and 60s, you didn't know anything about sex because nobody talked about it. So the idea that, you know, getting your your head around the idea that anything like that could be going on, it just never occurred to us. I mean, I know a fair number of people who grew up in parishes and there were whispers about a certain priest and you know, keep your kids away from him. But I, ne- I'd never heard anything like that. I had followed uh, our coverage of the Gagan story, which had been going on for three or four years before we got involved. And nobody could uh, sort of crack the code. And um, I think what had happened is if you look at uh, the public nature of this kind of uh criminal behavior by priests. The first time there was a big public story about it was in 1985 in Louisiana and uh, involving uh, one priest and whose his superiors had known and they transferred him from one parish to another. And then there was a case in Dallas. And the the interesting thing is pre-internet, um, I, I checked at one point the uh, the reporting in Louisiana was done by Jason Berry, who is an amazing reporter, really kind of first out of the box on this subject. Uh, the Boston Globe once ran a 280 word wire service story about that case in Louisiana. That's all we ever had. So unless... CBS News went to Louisiana and did it, or the New York Times went to Louisiana and did it, it generally wasn't known around the rest of the country. So the church benefited from the pre-internet age in that respect. And then in Boston, we had had a case in the Fall River Diocese in the early 90s. Uh, and um, and, and every time the church was pretty successful in saying, this is a case of one single aberrant priest. Yeah. And that's all it is. And we've taken care of it. And I think people tended to believe that. I mean, the idea that, that they were hiding hundreds of other, thousands of other priests who had done the same thing, I don't think it occurred to anybody. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of the backdrop. I, I mean... I, I was, uh, um, and remain, I guess you can't shake the label of a lapsed Catholic. Uh, but I, I, most of my adult life, I, I have not gone to Catholic uh, church. Uh, when my mother and my wife's mother were alive, we would go. Uh, but I, I kind of walked away from the church mostly over um, the fact that it had no place for women. I mean, what, what institution could get away with saying to more than slightly more than half of the population, 
you 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 can sit in the pews, but you you have no other role, yeah. no role in the in the direction or the governance of the, of the church. So uh, I had uh, for a long time not uh, not been uh, comfortable at all with the church. It turned out that of the four of us on the spotlight team, all of us had been raised Catholic. We just had never talked about it. Yeah. And, um, and it, it really helped us in our reporting because we understood the church culture. And we understood, once we began to uncover this, we understood how it could have remained hidden. We understood that priests who knew about it were afraid to speak out because their careers would come to an end. Um, and, um, and we understood a little bit about the whole weird celibacy issue where you have, you know, priests take a vow of celibacy and then, and there are surveys on this, more than half of them ignore those vows. Yeah. Because guess what? They're human beings like the rest of us. And the vast majority of them ignore those vows by having uh, relationships with consenting adults. Yeah. And then there's a subset who took advantage of uh, usually post-pubescent children, boys and girls, but more boys than girls. And um, so, you know, 12, 13, 14-year-old kids. Uh, and, and within the sort of general culture of secrecy that surrounded the fact that lots of priests were having uh, forbidden sexual relationships with adults, the abusers were kind of able to hide within that system. Yeah. I want to focus in on some of the details of what you and your team uncovered during the investigation. And in my reading of your investigation and of your personal views on your reflections of what was discovered, my understanding is that the most nefarious aspect of this that from your mind was uncovered during that time was the fact that once the documents were uncovered and you began to read about you know, Cardinal Law's full knowledge of, you mentioned Father Gagan, other priests that were in the, uh, the archdiocese that were abusing children, the consistent strategy of first and foremost being focused on how do we get rid of this problem by moving the priests around to different parishes and I think this is almost verbatim of me remembering a quote that you once made, which was that never once in any of the documents was there one comment made about the, the children that was never even mentioned in internal documents, a concern about what was hap happening to the kids. Is that, am I remember, remembering that correctly? And I'd love for you to speak to that specific point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh I'll 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 tell you an anecdote about that. Uh, in uh, 
the middle of January of 2002, because we had gone to court, the judge ordered the release of all of the Father Gagan personnel files. Yeah. And we got, with 36 hours to prepare the stories, we got 10,000 pages of documents. Mm -hmm. And we literally had them spread out on the floor in our offices, trying to organize them into into different uh, piles related to different aspects of what the church knew, what Gagan did, where he was assigned, how many victims here, how many there, uh, all of that stuff. So I remember uh, Marty uh, Barron calling down from the newsroom wanting to know what the lead was, Hmm. what was in the documents. And I tried to persuade him. I said, Marty, I said, what was, what's most important here is what's not in the documents. And I, Marty was a little skeptical. Well, what do you mean? You know, I think parenthetically he was saying, we just spent a lot of money on lawyers <laughs> and we won this victory to get the documents. And you're telling me the most important thing in the story is what's not in the documents. Mm. You got to be kidding me. Right. And I said, no, no. I said in 10,000 pages about Gagan and his abuse and moving him around. And there was never, not a single document, not a single sentence in a document that expressed any concern for the children he had abused. And we're talking about a pedophile who abused more than 400 children. Nobody in the, in the church, in the chancery, from the cardinal on down, who was involved in keeping all this quiet, ever expressed any concern about the children. That, to me, was the most chilling thing. And, this, and then over the next months, we got, I, I think we ended up with over 100,000 pages of documents. I have yet to see one that expresses any concern for the harm done to children. I have yet to see that. And that to me is, to me, that's the most indictable offense that, that in, in an institution uh, that has the hands of God on its shoulders would tolerate and encourage that kind of behavior. It's yeah. just, it's mind-boggling. Yeah. And uh, I, I, that, I, I don't know if that anecdote illustrates it, but it, it's just, uh, to this day, I, I mean, of all the indefensible things the church did, that, to me, is bottom line, yeah. most egregious. I think it speaks to their, their priorities uh, and... Uh, I, I'm wondering, for people that have maybe seen the Spotlight movie many years ago, are familiar roughly with the vague details of what you uncovered and what seemed to be a, a systematic, um, you know, cultural pattern within the the Catholic Church of how they dealt with abusing priests. I'd love to give you an opportunity to speak to what those patterns really were you know 
for you know within a parish if a priest had an allegation leveled against him what were the steps that the church generally tended to make what were their their habits of pattern their patterns their habits when they discovered that there was a priest that was behaving in this way um what do you remember about those details and my understanding about the habits that were uncovered and the almost the policies that seem to be ubiquitous they seem to be everywhere and followed in many many parishes parishes across the world what do you remember about those habits those patterns the the way in which the church dealt with priests that they had good reason to believe were actually doing these things to kids yeah it's a good question um uh, i think uh you're right when you say that the uh, the script, if you will, yeah. for dealing with this was pretty much the same in every diocese and archdiocese that I know of, including, by the way, archdioceses that were run by two popes, Pope Benedict and Pope John Paul II, who is now, of course, a saint. Yeah. Um, and, and that is that when somebody complained that their son or daughter had been touched or groped or whatever, um, the pastor would invariably say, please keep this quiet. Let me deal with it. I'll, I'll get some help for father. He didn't mean it. And most of the time parents were okay with that. And, and if they got too many complaints, then they would transfer the priest. That your typical priest who was not an abuser would spend seven or eight years in a parish before being reassigned. But when we looked at those who abused children, their typical tenure was uh, maybe in the two to three year range. Yeah. And so they would get sent to another parish. And sometimes starting in the 90s, they were actually sent for treatment even though I think the church knew that this really isn't a curable disease. Hmm. And, um, and then they were sent back to another parish. And sometimes, and we found lots of cases of this, priests who were priests who had uh, abused too many kids were traded to another diocese. So I'll give you one, one, one example of that. There was a priest in Arlington who uh, was charged with the anal rape of an altar boy. And, it tur- and he went in for his arraignment where you're supposed to plead not guilty and then the case is, is continued. He went in for his arraignment and pleaded guilty. This was in 1984. And, uh, and the, uh, the judge sent, sentenced him to probation, told him he couldn't be near children. And um, this is anal rape, by the way. This yeah. is not a little grope. And, um, and told him he couldn't leave the Commonwealth. So Cardinal Law almost immediately sent him to a diocese in New Jersey where he spent seven years in four parishes 
and nobody was told that this guy was a convicted rapist. And, and so that was sort of typical. There was a, a, a place in Worcester, Massachusetts, called the House of Affirmation, where they treated priests uh, who abused children. And this priest from Youngstown, Ohio, came there, and he was treated, and he liked it so much that he decided he wanted to stay in Massachusetts. And uh, Cardinal Law and the Boston Archdiocese welcomed him, and he was in two parishes over seven years and uh, abused many children, and they knew about his record. So, so the priests were traded. There were priests who, there was a priest in Boston who came from Thailand. And when an accusation surfaced against him, he just left the country. And uh, nobody was ever able to lay, uh, lay a hand on him. So that was, that was pretty common. And, um, and it, it's hard to believe. I mean, the Vatican, of course, knew about this all along. And it's hard to believe that bishops and cardinals all did the same thing without ever talking to one another about it. Yeah. So that's kind of how this system worked. And yeah, you've mentioned cardinal cardinal law uh, a, a few times, and my understanding is that after largely because of your publication about what he knew and when he knew it. And his covering for people like Father Gagan, he resigned from his position in 2002 and was promptly transferred to another, uh, I think, basilica in Rome and ended his career at the age of 80, uh, is now dead, but lived another few years in retirement. The I would love to talk about the extent of the knowledge of the information that we have talked about today. You know, I, I remember when these allegations surface, th- these facts began to surface publicly and, you know, defenders of the Catholic church would often make statements like this is a small minority of people who knew about this. This wasn't uh, widely known. You can't, you know, throw the baby the baby out with the bathwater, or make an a judgment against an institution as large as the Catholic Church, based upon you know the the terrible judgment and the criminal behavior of just a small percentage of its 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 leadership. What do you know about that? What is the truth of the extent within the the Catholic Church itself of the likely knowledge amongst its leadership about what was going on and had been, been going on for decades? Well, I mean, it's, it's pretty well documented, certainly by now, that uh, in virtually every a diocese, the bishops knew and participated in the cover-up. And the documents, by the way, that said nothing about the plight of the children had a lot to say about the church's principal goal was to keep this a secret. Yeah. Was to keep the cover up going. And, and this was, um, I think of Cardinal Law, you know, in December of 2002, after we, we had been reporting on this 
for the whole year. We did 600 stories in 2002. That's a lot. And um, Cardinal Law was transferred to Rome and put in charge of one of four major basilicas, given a cook and a 10,000 euro a month allowance. And everybody thought, well, he's being rewarded. Well, the fact is he was the most powerful American cardinal. So he lost power. Mm. But the reason he got the cushy retirement is he just, he took a bullet for the team. Yeah. They were all doing the same thing. And um, th- there's no doubt about that. In um, I think about three quarters of the dioceses in the United States, it has been proven beyond a doubt that the bishops were all involved in, in the cover. So it's hard to find a diocese where this was not happening. Hmm. And, um, you know, some bishops were tougher on priests. You know, they moved to get them defrocked or laicized uh, quicker than others. Uh, uh, some, you know, one of the last stories we ran before Cardinal Law resigned was about a priest, Father Robert Meffin, who was retired, and he had been in charge of young high school age girls who were studying to become nuns. And he had persuaded them to have sex with him because he was Jesus Christ's representative on earth, and they need to become intimate with Jesus Christ, and he was Jesus Christ. And he actually believed this. In fact, one of our reporters, Sasha Pfeiffer, interviewed him, and he he acknowledged this. And the cardinal knew all about it. And the cardinal sent him to another parish. And then when he retired, the cardinal wrote him a letter in which he said, thank God for your service in taking care of the needs of young people. That's what he actually said in his letter. So you, you wonder what, what was the cardinal thinking when he wrote that? He probably thought nobody would ever see it. But, but, but that he would not be troubled at all by what this priest did. Yeah. Um, so that, that's, um, I mean, there, there are literally hundreds of examples of, of sort of that kind of behavior by the people in charge. So I think one thing we learned at, uh, as we were re- reporting this is that, you know, how many times can you write stories about what a priest did to a particular child or what a priest did to a group of children when the real story was the people at the top who made this possible? Yeah. Uh, and I say they enabled it because they did. Um, and, um, you, you know, I, I mean, I can't uh, – the. the this is the. This is not my view, although I share it. Uh, but this is the gravest crisis to hit the Catholic Church since the Reformation. Yeah. And uh, and they still haven't figured out a way to make it right. Yeah. 
you alluded to this earlier in the conversation that I think you said in your estimation, something like 10% of American priests have been involved in some way in the abuse of kids. And, you know, any institution the size of the Catholic Church, which is once one of the largest institutions in the world, is going to have inevitably some form of criminal behavior of of malfeasance of misconduct but there does seem to be obviously something about the catholic church itself that led to such widespread abuse and you alluded to this in this conversation too and i i remember researching this about a comment that you made uh prior to this conversation about how you know there is <laughs> because of its celib- its, celib- its celibacy vow you know inevitably it seems in your judgment to be incentivizing a certain type of person personality and eventual almost um extraordinary obstacle for a human being who is living a life under those constrictions. And I'm sure you have thought a lot about this and you've spoken to this already a little bit during this conversation, but in your judgment, what is it about the incentives of the Catholic church, its structures, its history that has led to such rampant abuse in its parishes that seem to be found everywhere in the world? How do you think about that? I think about it uh, a lot. Uh, I, I think uh, it's complicated. You know, we have to remember that 90% of the priests were wonderful. Yeah. The children and the families that they, that they entered the priesthood to serve. And we know that many, many priests have left the priesthood to marry because they couldn't they couldn't have sex yeah. with anyone. And um, and nowadays they mostly live alone in drafty old rectories because which used to have five or six priests, but now usually have just one. Uh, and it's a very lonely existence for anyone. And, and when you look, and this is a complicated subject, and I don't pretend, I mean, I think celibacy plays a role. I think the priesthood, say, unlike the Lutheran ministry, where Lutherans are like Catholics, like Episcopalians are, but they're married. Yeah. They tend to be married. Um, and um, so you you attract a percentage of vocations from people who are sexually and emotionally immature and act out with children. Now I'm 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 interviewed experts about this. I am not an expert on it, but 
it's a very complicated issue. I've raised the celibacy issue in public forums and sometimes had priests get up and tell me that I'm wrong. Celibacy is a wonderful thing and et cetera, et cetera. But I think it has its downside. And I think, you know, the church used to say that fewer than 1% of its priests were abusers. And that was no different than the Protestants or uh, uh, the rabbis. And, and of course, in all institutions where children are involved, there, there's abuse. I mean, look at the Boy Scouts. They, yeah. they have 82,000 claims for, uh, from uh, uh, victims in, in the United States. So this is not exclusive to the church. I think the percentage of the abusers is much higher in, in the Catholic Church than in other in other denominations. And, um, but we, but we know that throughout our society, uh, this is a problem. I mean, look anywhere, look at, uh, the abuse of gymnasts by trainers and physicians. And, and, um, it's, it's, and, and it's a good thing. I think that society uh, at least in the U.S., there's more of a recognition of this now. And one, uh, certainly true in the Catholic Church, that, but I think generally truer is that parents are a lot more aware of the potential danger to their children than used to be the case. Yeah, We used to send our kids off to caregivers without ever considering the possibility we'd be putting them in harm's way. And I think that... Those days are over, um, and that's a good thing. Yeah. Is it your view, I'm sure, and granting the caveat that you're not an expert per se on this specific subject, but in your research, is it your view that these abusers are generally pedophiles who are attracted to the Catholic Church because of the specifics of the job or that they generally tend to become that way because of all of the factors you've already articulated and and then some the loneliness the the celibacy etc how do you think about that well i think in i think both ways you put it are true yeah that that uh some once they're in the institution find a way to satisfy their inclinations and in in a, in a society that is sort of secret. I mean, the Catholic Church, uh, the Church is a clericalist society, which is one of its major problems. Which which is to say that the Church exists for the benefit of the clergy and not the people. Yeah, and that's been a problem in the Catholic Church for generations. And 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 I think that's. One thing that Pope Francis, against long odds, has been trying to change. Because, in fact, if you are part of an institution and part of its governing structure, you kind of like it that way. That it really exists for the bishops, the cardinals, and the priests. And, oh, and those people, yeah. But they don't count as much. So that's 
that's sort of an overhanging issue for the church. Um, if the church was not so clericalist, I think a lot of this wouldn't have happened because yeah. the people in charge would have held those who did it accountable. So um, it's, it's, it's a complicated, I mean, the other issue that this get, gets raised time and again is, and some conservative elements in the church, some very conservative elements uh, believe that this is, this abuse was by gay priests. So therefore, if we get rid of the gay priests, we'll solve it. But the problem is the the vast majority of, of the perpetrators, whether they abuse boys or girls, identify themselves as heterosexual. Mm. And, and, and there's data outside of the church, but in society in general, that, that uh, 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 LBGTQ people are no more likely to abuse children than heterosexual people. Yeah. So there, there's no real evidence to support that, that view in, in the church. Yeah. We've talked about the, you know, I think in your judgment, the, the, the darkest and most nefarious aspect of what was uncovered in the, what had been internal documents related to the lack of concern for kids. We've talked about the extent of the abuse and some of the priests that were involved in, you know, years or decades of, of abuse. What else comes to mind in your research that, you know, your spotlight team shed light on in terms of unknown facts about the church and its, you know, systematic cover-up, its insistence on secrecy that you think matters and resonates with you, if, if anything else comes to mind that you think is, you know, important for the public to continue to keep in mind outside of the, the, the lack of concern for kids that we haven't talked about, I'd, I'd love to know what else those details might be. I think, uh, one uh, one issue is um, one major issue which remains unresolved in the Catholic Church is there are an extraordinary number of committed Catholic lay people, many or probably most of them women, who care about the church, who care about its mission who support its values, who want to have and should have a greater say and a greater role in how the church deals with itself and its problems and with its faithful. And these are voices that seem never (laughs) to be heard. And that's a shame. because there is so much the church could do to better itself, to improve its transparency, which 
really needs to happen for the church to emerge from this mm. and grow again. Uh, there are so many things that need to happen that could happen if the church listened to all of this available counsel and expertise. Yeah. So that, that's a Catholic church uh, take. But, but I think in addition to that, uh, I, and I'm, I'm thinking about the journalism here. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, this is a, obviously a classic case of holding a powerful pe- institution accountable. That people need to understand the importance of a free press in a democratic mm-hmm. society and the role we play, uh, however unseemly it may appear at times, is important. People need good information to make good decisions. And this is a case, obviously, where um, people learned the truth, and it was difficult. But what, one a benchmark that I... Uh, kept for a long time, um, there were a lot of conservative Catholics who had no use for the Boston Globe. And there are some who still do. But one thing that I found after our reporting had been going on for a while, we started to get calls from conservative Catholics of a certain age who had raised their children in the church and been devout Catholics And they called to thank us because we had exposed a cancer on the church that needed to be excised. Yeah. And um, so I I think about a lot about the sort of the journalism lesson. And I, I think, and we've talked about the lessons for the church, uh, that that might help it regain some of its reputation. Yeah. I we started this conversation talking about how the spotlight team was largely initially it sounds like focused on corruption and you know the the Catholic Church scandal no doubt uncovered widespread corruption. I think a cancer is probably the right way to frame it a cancer that was in some ways hiding in plain sight, but was not well known by the public. And now that your team has shed light on this, and I think these facts are now easily discoverable and findable by people who are, who are curious and interested. I'm wondering, just as a lapsed Catholic, Catholic yourself, someone who has spent a lot of time thinking about and talking about what the details are of what the Catholic Church had been up to for so long, whether you think that there is a a wholesome way out of this, a way forward for the church. I was thinking during this conversation that part of you know part of the additional darkness of this entire story is that, and I relate to this because of what the Catholic Church meant to me when I was a kid, you know that that space in your life for a believer is you know, an area for vulnerability and spiritual growth and openness um, 
and religiosity and devotion and the widespread uh, abuse in that context makes, I think, the situation even more, um, even more dark. And so I'm wondering for yourself if you think that there is a way, and you alluded to this in this conversation, that you don't think that the church has been able to this point to really um, turn the page on this or to really admit in full detail what they have done. It's, it's reminding me in some ways of, the, of what the Germans did after the Second World War of taking their children to concentration camps. And you know, I think there is a respect that was gained by the global population in the sense that they they faced this squarely, their own history, and didn't shy away from the the insanity and the abuse and the murderousness of of their prior regime. And I'm I'm wondering for for you if you think that there is a way that the church might be able to. Um, not necessarily redeem itself, but to make some progress here ethically and uh, to look what happened dead in the eye. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. I think uh, back to my own upbringing in the church and every Saturday afternoon, we went to confession. And we were taught in grade school, Catholic grade school, that when you went to confession, you confessed all of your sins to God. And in order to seek and receive forgiveness, you had to confess all of your sins. And I think there's a lesson in that for the church And that is, they need to confess everything. They need to, and it's difficult for them to do this because their their whole culture is antithetical to dealing publicly, to talking publicly about their problems. They want to handle everything internally. But I think until and unless the church comes clean completely. And that includes about a quarter to a third of the dioceses in the United States that haven't done so yet. Until that happens, I think the public has reason to remain at arm. The Catholic public has reason to keep its own church as much as it wants to embrace, as they want to embrace it again, to keep the church at arm's length. And I think the church's reputation can't begin the restoration process until that happens. Yeah. And frankly, we're 20 years on now, and it hasn't happened yet. And we have a pope who tries every now and then to change things, but he's up against a much more conservative culture among his own cardinals who don't want to change. And, and so will it happen? I mean, the church 
thinks in terms of centuries. Yeah. And, you know, us, when, when we see a need for change, we want it to happen right away. And so uh, Catholics who are impatient have a lot more impatience ahead of them, I, I fear. Yeah. I know we're getting towards the, the end of the conversation. And before we get into the final couple of um, subjects here, I, I just personally want to say how much I admire what you and your team have done um, in the name of really what I think of as a public service. Um, and I, I know I speak for a lot of people in expressing gratitude for, for your work. You know, journalism is an industry that does not often pay particularly well, and it takes a lot of dedication and effort. Um, and I think I heard you say this in an interview that I was listening to in the past couple of days, that this is the kind of thing that you live for, that you work to try to uncover and to share with the public. And this is a related topic that I wanted to go over to you, which is the the asymmetric play. You said this earlier in the conversation that your spotlight team that took this on, I think was three or four people in total. I mean, that is a very small group of people that uncovered something that rippled across the world. And to me, that's a source of hope for transparency and truth in the world in general, in that small groups of people who are curious and relentless and dedicated have the ability in certain contexts to uncover facts about the world like you did. And we talked offline before the conversation started about how different journalism is now in terms of just its resources for the people working for, for newspapers and magazines. And I'm wondering for, for you as an investigative journalist, what you think the role of the investigative journalist is now, given the economic difficulties of taking a position that on, and maybe directing this more towards young people who might be watching this conversation and feel inspired to want to get involved in the kind of work that you did, what advice you might have for them about that, that kind of work and why it matters in general? Yeah. Uh, well, I teach investigative reporting and I have since uh, 2007. So I, I, I talk to my students about this a lot. Um, uh, where I teach now at Arizona State University at the Walter Cronkite School, which is one of the best journalism schools in the country, half of our undergraduate students now are enrolled in sports journalism. Hmm. I love sports. Uh, but my notion of journalism that matters is journalism that really does shine lights into dark corners. Yeah. Journalism that does hold 
powerful people and institutions accountable. And there's never a shortage of really good stories to do. We happen to stumble, obviously, on the mother of all great stories. But um, it, it is for me, and I've been most fortunate and blessed sometimes to be in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but it is for me a life worth living. To be able, you know, we used to say, it's kind of a hackneyed phrase, you know, journalism is the first rough draft of history and you have a front row seat to history. And that, that's exhilarating. Mm. I mean, to be able to cover a president or a presidential campaign or even a war, God forbid. Mm. Um, but, but there are a lot of things that journalists can do despite the lower pay uh, that are far more rewarding than what they could do for 10 times as much as an investment banker. Yeah. Say, and, and, and it is um, for me, it, it's, it's a calling. And I, There's just, uh, it's, it's difficult to do this kind of reporting because it takes time. And unfortunately, uh, we have half as many reporters at daily newspapers in the U.S. as we had 17 years ago. Yeah. And I have students who study investigative reporting under me. They do investigative stories and then they get out into the job market and they get hired at a newspaper and they say to the editor, I want to do investigative stories. And the editor says, I'd love to have you do them, but we don't have the time. So if you want to do them on your own time, that's fine. That's not obviously the best approach. Uh, there are a lot of a lot of papers that news organizations that place a premium on investigative reporting. The spotlight team at the Globe now is more than twice as big as it used to be, hmm. uh, because it it our readers. Anytime you do a readership survey and you ask people what's most important, it's not. Forgive me, my friends who cover sports. It's not the sports reporting. Yeah, it's precisely the kind of reporting that investigative reporters do. Um, and people understand the importance of that. And, um, the only question is whether they'll continue to support it. And I think they will. Yeah. Last question I would love to ask you is related to, to that theme. And you you just said this, that there are always an abundance of, of great stories that need talented investigative journalists to to tell them what are the ones that are in your mind maybe hiding in plain sight right now um or maybe not hiding in plain sight that is not particularly well known that you think a small team of talented dedicated people with enough time and and some resources would be able to to tell in a way that 
that mattered for the public? Yeah, I like to think uh, that uh, anytime uh, journalists walk by a large rock that's never been turned over, that there's a great story there. Yeah. And I, I uh, just this uh, last week, I had, uh, I'm not going to give away any ideas, but uh, because of a certain anecdote that was relayed to me, I suggested that our investigative team should perhaps look at a revered secular institution where nobody would imagine that anything is being done wrong. Yeah. It's just that nobody's ever looked at it. And I, I am convinced that there is a public service to be done by assigning reporters. This is a particular sacred cow Hmm. uh, assigning reporters. This couldn't, this isn't just a Boston story. This is an everywhere story that uh, there's a great story to be had uh, for good reporters and for the public. Uh, But, but those uh, journalists are like people pretty much everywhere. We, we don't think outside the box as much as we should. Yeah. And uh, we, we walk by, you know, we think we're 24 seven, but we walk by really good stories when we're out on our own in our off time and we just don't notice them. Hmm. Uh, We walk by people who have stories to tell and we don't stop to talk to them. And the fact is most reporters at most papers, certainly most investigative reporters don't come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. And, and many of the really important stories we need to do involve people who get run over by society. Yeah. And those people are not people who send their children to private school in Harvard. Those, those are people that we don't know, and we need to talk to them more. We need to get outside of our comfort zone and spend time finding out what life is really like for people who don't have the advantages that some of us have had. Yeah. Robbie, this was such a pleasure. I have, um, I've really been looking forward to this. And I, I think that, you know, any reform has to start in my mind with, with the truth and uncovering the truth. And I said this earlier that I think I speak for probably millions of people that have a deep appreciation for what you do and what you have done in your career. And I share your view that, you know, the work that you do while having its difficulties, financial and otherwise at times is, is just, um, meaningful and matters and is important. And I, I hope conversations like this might inspire some people to consider getting involved in this kind of work. Cause I, I, I think you're right that we, we need it. And it's one of the only checks available in society for the voiceless and for people who are not being represented. So 
um, more than anything, thank you for the time and the effort. It was, it's an honor to do this, man. And, um, I, I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. That very much. Uh, I, I, I just have to say, I had the good fortune to work for a news organization, which values this kind of reporting and pretty much everywhere people can, can and should demand that their local news organization devote its resources to this kind of work. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good place to close. Thanks, Robbie. It's great to meet you. Thank you, Dan. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. 